Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 19 and we have professional punter and jockey manager John Walter joining the podcast. John takes us inside his time at world-leading betting operation Humbleton, led by the renowned Joko Raganek. John talks about what it is like to be a jockey manager, some tips and tools for punters, and racing as an industry and the wagering product. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with John Walter. Today I'm joined by John Walter. John, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, mate. There's a pretty intimidating bunch of people gone before me, so hopefully I can do it some justice. No, you certainly sit very comfortably among them. Uh, as we get started here, do you want to go through a little bit about your background and how you got involved with the Australian racing industry and what led you to where you are today? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll try. It's a bit of a different one to most, I guess. I uh, Pretty simple, had a, had a bit of a father who, who was a hobby punter and, and sort of probably got me the, into the bug of it and and uh, mixed that up with, I was a, a mad golfer, mad keen golfer growing up and, and the guys I used to play with were, one was a bookie and, and the other keen punters and they, they sort of dragged me out from a youngish age, I guess 15, 16 out to the races and uh, like that, that was, it sort of grew from there and once I got to a, a legal betting age, I, uh, I became keener and keener and I probably didn't miss a race meeting for about five years at one stage, I was going country, provincial, everywhere around New South Wales trying to learn from people that I could I went and did some work experience sort of in in stables and uh with a couple of leading trainers in Sydney to to try and learn more of that side I got tied up in the breeding side of it and and learned about learned off a guy who was uh the a key person for uh, matching up mares with stallions and tried to learn about the, the size I just got fully immersed in the industry probably from 18 to 25 uh, just just going racetracks, learning what I could. The golf sort of went by the wayside, and and it wasn't until um, I was punting for a few people and doing things, but it wasn't until I went to work for Humbleton for uh, Jelco's company in Sydney that I uh, had any real formal training. It was more just on the job, learning bits and pieces, and and it and it sort of that what their formal training combined with what I'd learned off some eccentric people along the way is kind of what bound everything together for me and was a, it was a really strong turning point. And I spent a couple of years there. Um, like their training was, was incredible, sort of three to six months nearly it took for four of us that went through the system together to – it's all pretty much common sense, but the way it sort of sticks with you and all does make sense and, and folds in with everything uh, was, was incredible for me. And the couple of years that I spent there was, was totally invaluable, even though I never – got to a, a high level in their company i was only a video watcher and a, and a pace and bias sort of person uh but it was still still invaluable and then i headed uh from a book from the punning side of things and went and worked for a corporate bookmaker in, in um in sydney and and learnt the bookmaking side of things so i've kind of went 
full circle. I actually started out working as a penciler sort of thing with a bookmaker and ended up back there, ended up running risk management for a, for a corporate for oh, two or three years. And that kind of finished off my training, I guess you could say. Like I, I'd got to learn nearly every part of the industry in small parts and and when I left there that was kind of when I was ready to to do my own thing and and started my own company providing information to uh, trainers and and owners and jockeys and and the general public and and that's kind of moved to where I am today and only recently I've started to become a, a, a jockey agent as well which is really fulfilling and good fun working with a couple of really really good guys who are obviously good jockeys as well so it's it's uh it's been a, a for a long 15 years, but uh, very enjoyable. Probably a little bit longer now, but really enjoyable. You certainly do touch on almost every aspect of the industry. So can you take us inside a little bit with your work at Humbleton? I don't want to sort of dig yes. too deep and give away too much, but how was that? You said you mentioned the formal training, but when you're talking about the actual work, do they compartmentalize absolutely everything there and it's a efficient operation in regards to their form operation and then on the betting side as well? Yeah, so well, what I was exposed to, as you say, they compartmentalise pretty much all of it to try and keep every... I don't think they anyone... Like, I don't understand the higher you get up, the more you're exposed, but the people at the grunt level, which is basically where I was, uh, never got to see behind the, the curtain or whatever you want to, want to say. There was plenty of speculation and obviously you heard things and, and dealt with people who were at a higher level, so you did hear and see a lot. But the... I reckon there was probably at least 30 to 40 people working in the office I was in uh, full-time, and that was I was in the first office that was basically uh, when everyone was working from home, being sent CDs and, and doing things uh, from, from their own homes before that. We moved into this office, and, and it, was, uh, it was not just good fun, but it was really uh, – you, you I think the learning environment from their point of view was really strong because if you needed to ask questions or – uh, you were always dealing with people talking about races. You were always learning and improving. And I'd say that their system was uh, evolved from just just having everyone in the same office. So I'd say, like, from a consistency, and, and they were they didn't really want you to have an opinion. They wanted you to have their opinion, which is fine. They were paying for that, and uh, and that's basically all you did at the level I was at. And and then it was would sort of obviously move to a a, a, a person above me who would c- collate the previous information and then I assume they bet off it so I honestly didn't get to see as you like sort of behind the curtain like a lot of people have but uh, from from where I did see it it was unlike anything I'd ever heard of or seen and seen since it was, it was incredible the amount of money uh, being spent on gathering information to just just to move to another level which and then there were more people and more people again before so the amount of money they were spending on uh, like uh, this information that they were collating was was incredible just to imagine how much they must have to win to break square, let alone to make the huge profits they obviously have over the years. So is there such thing as a secret source for an operation like that or is it just really, really hard work, a lot of information gathering, a lot of, I guess, smart people together and then I guess a lot of precision and timing and, you know, from the operation side just being, you know, ruthless when it comes to every single part that goes into making a bet and because of that over time they were just going to grind it out is that the secret sauce or is there something else that makes them so successful because i know around the world there's a lot of iconic betters and a lot of things they're doing are pretty secret um and i guess that's sort of the mythology 
around those types of people. But is it in general that they just work really, really hard and they have a lot of very smart people and they do the right things more often than not? I, th- I think they, they worked it out very very early, some sort of key components to racing, which which are the things that have kind of stuck and helped with me. Like uh, Just like, like things like bias, things that they'd observed. That, that, so there were obviously some very talented people early in the piece that were putting systems together to uh, find gaps in the market that were being underplayed and overplayed, and they were they just exploited those. And on top of the huge commission deals that, that were available through tote betting, I think that that allowed them to be probably the pioneers in uh, really going wide with their techniques. So getting covering as much racing as possible, you know, reviewing as many races and betting on as many races as possible, turning over huge amounts of money, and the rebates that they were receiving would just uh, like that, that was the, the the high turnover, low margin model that they obviously ran. I remember like early in the piece, I can't remember who told me. They said basically, if we if the information we provide breaks square, we've got a job for life. So it, it was, wow. uh, yeah, it, like kind of interesting. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, we've got to be really good. So what they had developed was something that could provide the most turnover across the most markets and obviously break square or better, and then their commissions were just through the roof, and that's what what, what turned them into what they were. So, it's you know, it's probably you could perfect the model, which is like someone like me, I guess, tries to do, take the best of what they've got, add your little personal touches on your small areas, and that's how you can be a, you know, a be, you can win more money on turnover than they would, but they're going to turn over, you know, a thousand more times than I could ever, but that we dream of. So yeah, it's it's a, an incredible big machine that just churns out basically, you know, a break square or, or slightly better model. And yeah, that, so I I wouldn't say it's a precision model. It's just yeah, that, that it was just that's what it is. Like just a big factory that, that churns out bets. And it was uh, obviously you know they found markets all over the world that it was uh, they could adapt to and and where they could get their their rebates. And that was it. So what? percentage market are they working in in general then i don't need specifics but in general anyone who's having a bet on the weekend are probably looking at whether it's sports they're looking at 110 percent market or or other racing markets where it's probably higher or lower depending on the situation but are they working in you know 102 percent markets quite often given the rebates i wouldn't say i'd i'd say well they i'd say they're working in say you're looking in japan and things i think their their takeouts are like 125 or something but you can get rebates sort of up to 15 i think they were getting so even if you say it's like they would be working in 110 percent markets i'd say pretty generally maybe less in in other areas like australia i think well we're about 118 they were getting 10 so it's still it's still a pretty tough market they're they're working in so they i guess they they have to be more profitable, obviously, in the areas where they're, they're taking the less. And then, and they're obviously playing in Betfair and things like that as well in 100% markets, but not getting the rebate. So it's, um, yeah, they obviously did it, do have an edge. It's just a matter of, you know, whether it's covering the, the rebates or not after it. So it's, it's, um, I don't think they bet that much with like corporates and things over the years. Obviously, they have to adapt like everyone with the totes shrinking and things happening. But I think they made most of their money out of totes, which are obviously a bit higher percentage than any fixed odds or sports markets available. Yeah. Oh, well, when you th- when you think about sports betting, I think the break even is fifty two point four percent if you're looking at about one hundred and ten percent market. So you don't have to yeah. be too far over the fifty percent mark to to get out alive. And if you're talking about some of the mammoth turnover numbers that 
you can imagine with an operation like that, betting around the world every day, almost every race, probably, then yeah, you know, it adds up pretty quickly. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's and, and we're talking here like we we used to cover dogs, trots, uh, and we're talking trots all around the world, dogs all around the world, horses all around the world. So it's literally just a machine that's churning, turning, churning turnover twenty four hours, seven days a week. So what happens if they have a day off or a week off or something happens and the, that operation ceases? Does someone in that standing and position have an impact on the, the general market or not? Well, you would have to say yes. And I, and I do remember um, at a time there where when the tax issue sort of came about when they were sort of under investigation or whatever you want to call it and, and uh, the, the, the leaders or the, the shareholders were slapped with big bills and they, uh, I think, Jelko moved overseas for a time, and and it was like rumoured that he'd pulled out of Betfair here, he'd pulled out of, or he just the, the whole company had pulled out of Betfair and and the landscape, and and prices sort of became a lot uh, more volatile. You know, you would you would say Betfair was a very good guide, you know, when he was around, and and big players were playing into the market, and then all of a sudden he dropped out, and. You know, no one was getting their leads anymore. So a lot of punters just were betting simply off his leads. The corporates were running off his leads on Betfair. So the market was a little bit in disarray. And I, I'm not sure whether he's stepped back in or there's other big syndicates like uh, I think there's a Dr. Nick in, that, in Australia now who, who dictate those markets late and have stepped in and, and corrected it. But it's definitely not the same as, as it was, say, 10 years ago when he was a huge player here. Interesting. So... You're a jockey's agent. What portion of your day or week does that take up as opposed to your doing the form and, and betting and other aspects of, of your, I guess, average week? It's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, when, when I was first, um, I, was, I was good friends with, I like look after two jockeys, one Josh Parr and Tim Clark, and I was sort of friends with them well before this came about. And we used to just talk about racing a lot and they could tell that I was passionate and half knew what I was talking about. So they would always, you know, we'd have good good time talking about racing because they both both love the industry. And and it came about Josh had an injury and, and asked me if I'd at least have a, have a try at it because he just wanted a change. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'll be any good. I don't know if I'll have the time, but we'll see how we go. And really it, it kind of folds in because I'm always looking for, you know, horses to follow reviewing meetings and basically, that really fits in with with what they need, you know, the, the right horses to try and target to get on in upcoming meetings, and and that doesn't really take any more time for me. So apart from you know a few phone calls and text messages here or there, so it's only really time consuming on days where there's uh, acceptances coming out and trial acceptance things things that you know when when I've got a lot of inbound calls coming, that's the only time it's really you know time. Uh, consuming for me up and above and beyond what I'd normally be doing. So apart from when I'm talking to them about racing or, or compiling, looking, I'll always look at the races they're, they're in anyway. So unless they go interstate or something, there's no real difference in time for me and I find it really enjoyable. So whatever extra time, it doesn't really feel like it to me anyway. It's, it's good fun. So I don't think I've ever heard from a jockey's agent before. Is it a game of chess and you're calling different trainers and trying to put them on certain horses in certain times because you give them a better chance in the market or are you just are you just taking inbound calls every day and every week and then you know picking the best of the options that are available? So it's a, it's a, it is a balancing act and you've, you're obviously trying to keep everyone as happy as possible too. That's you know the key is to build solid relationships and you don't want to 
uh, you know, jeopardise one for the other if you can possibly avoid it. And say, uh, like Tim, for argument's sake, he's got a, a couple of key stables, uh, Les Bridge in Sydney and, and Gay Waterhouse is really uh, supportive of him, Gerald Ryan. So these are the stables we try and uh, be more in touch with to make sure that we're looking after their needs and then I'm looking for things to slot around them a lot of the time uh, to try and, you know, obviously the most positive outcome for the jockey, so the best horses possible. But you have to sort of manage the relationships as well. So sometimes you, won't, you might take a ride that you know is not the best option, but it's the best option long term. Uh, you might take a ride that's not going to be good today, but two or three starts down the track, it's a horse that you want to be on. So there's, it's, it's a real balancing act all the time. <laughs> You're not always on the horses you think can win the races today, but there's usually a reason why you, you want to be on that. And then uh, you'll, you might, you'll, you'll pick up, you know, half a dozen races a week of just just someone calling in and saying, is he available? Yes. And, and filling the book sort of thing. So not to say they're bad rides, but you just, you're basically just yeah. uh, taking what comes. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's pretty, it is a bit, bit like a chess game, as you kind of, kind of say. It's at, um yeah, it's, it's a balancing act and you can't keep everyone happy all the time and you, you are going to miss, you know, good good opportunities, but hopefully it all balances out in the end. Interesting. So you mentioned earlier you're involved in the breeding side a little bit. How do you use that to your advantage, whether it be from the form perspective or the betting perspective? Because a lot of, I would imagine a lot of uh, everyday punters take absolutely no notice of it. Or if they do, it's, oh, this is a you know, this is Lonro or this is in Costa de Lago. That's a good, that's a good uh, sire. That's going to win sort of stuff. How can you use it to your advantage? So I, um, I, the reason why I kind of got into it, I was, I was lucky enough to be friends with a few people who owns, who owns some studs and things and just kind of asked if I could tag along and then went to some stallion shows. And I just, you know, we always had the, whether it be mythological or whatever you believe, things like wet track size always pay, oh, this horse performs and it's, you know, progeny perform well on wet tracks. And I wanted to investigate that a bit more and understand why uh, different sires may throw different characteristics into their progeny that would suit those sort of things. And uh, I really, to be honest, never found anything from, from that point of view. There are, they're, they're, like what I did definitely find is that certain horses throw definite characteristics through their lines and it's usually mental it's a, I, I find that you know certain horses throw horses that are highly strung that can be hard racing hard to manage so i that that was probably the best form part that i found and what i found since is that you know certain families that are strong continue to be sh- strong so i i don't think it's anything of the sire or the mare it seems to be a combination of the two and there is there is slight edges in breeding for me but i I really think it's overplayed by the market and it's not not a big edge it was probably the time least best spent of all of all the things i've done to be honest but it was was eye-opening and interesting to have a look at that side of the business but it's it's probably at the end of the day you're better off having a look at the horse itself and judging it on its on you know on its own merit rather than than its family who its mother and father is at the end of the day yeah so when you're looking at a market um on a race day are you targeting a certain range in the market are you looking at the the favorite end or are you looking at more long shots how do you approach uh a race or is it individual to the individual race it's definitely individual and i and i, I would say that um 
I don't really have a range or any. I don't look for that sort of thing. I did, and it is. I have to change. Uh, it's probably more to do with the marketplace and everything than anything that I have to move towards the more favoured end of the market. I've probably over the years I've turned a lot more money over in the say oh, five, six to twenty twenty dollar range than I have in the last couple of years simply because of the change in the in the landscape and how hard it is to turn money over in that section. So that was my most profitable area and I have to cut that back and probably move into a, a darker, dangerous, more dangerous area for me, the higher end of the market and and try and really perfect that part more. So it I'm changing currently and that's uh it's not really that comfortable for me at the moment, but it's uh hopefully I'll I'll adapt to, to the new environment. So take us through how you're trying to adapt. Are you trying to place more bets? Are you trying to turn more money over on the bets that you're already placing? What are some of the things you can do to try and adapt to the current marketplace? Because I'm sure others are going through a similar transition and they might be looking at you know a lot of favorites in their sort of betting profile and they might be thinking how they can adapt to, I guess, uh, come up to speed with the current situation. Well, I just, I really, I say, say, I... It's probably just a number I pull out of my head, but say I would never bet under five to two before. I would use them in sort of multis and other ways to, to buffer in, in different bets. I would never bet outright in, in lower end of the market very often. And I basically have to place more emphasis on making sure that everything lines up to be able to bet into that end of the market. I just have probably applied extra checks into how I do the form and, and come up with a final sort of figure on horses in that lower end to make sure that I'm, I'm I've, I've so I basically worked hard on making sure that my pricing in the lower end of the market has an edge over the market uh, whereas before I was working on betting out of the market a bit more you had more leeway uh, you could turn the money over and I was find, finding it was profitable so I wasn't too concerned about my pricing but when you when you're really working in this lower end and like the, the percent, you can still get the, your, your value percentages, but you've just got to make sure that you're not marking the horses incorrectly. So I'm still perfecting that. I can. I've probably always been a little bit harsh on favourites and uh, and always against them, um, and it was probably more a mental thing. And now I really have to move into that market, so I have to find a way to make sure that I'm more correct. Well, I am correct more often than I'm yeah, not. Basically, if it's uh, yeah, it's just it's just a, probably a, a harder filtration system at that end of the market than at the other end for me, and that's that's the, the main adaption. So, do you think that'll have an impact on the pointy end of the market as we sort of go move into the spring and beyond? Because a lot more people are focusing there because they want to be able to um, you know increase their bets or increase the amount of money they're having on their bets, and that might shorten up the prices of those favoured runners because less people are focusing on the, the higher price horses or you think it'll come out in the wash? I, I think it's having a huge effect on the on that pointing into the market. We're seeing horses say that I say I've got a horse that I've got confirmed that I think should be a dollar ninety, say it's two dollars forty in early markets or something like that. That horse is, is because these minimum bet laws kick in at nine o'clock on race day, that horse is usually well backed and then Back, you know, say say back two or three years ago, people probably wouldn't have tumbled in early. They're sort of forced into it now because they have to get something on that horse and at the time that they're guaranteed at a fixed price. 
that horse is coming into say a dollar seventy or something crazy really quickly, and it's not getting back out uh, because it is the the horse that kind of everybody uh, with with a, with a decent bank size and a bit of ability want to be on, uh, and so you're taking a shorter price, I believe, about confirmed short price favourites or shorter the shorter end of the market, and vice versa. The the the, the fake false favourites. Uh, early at nine o'clock in the morning, you're getting out to say four and five dollars very quickly and not shortening back up. So I think that shorter end of the market is far more educated quickly, and it's just a, just simply because of uh, the new the processes and these automated you know betting algorithms that are that are the corporates are running to to uh, shorten their prices and lengthen their prices so dramatically. But it's it just seems to be that that that, that short end on the on the horses that you can confirm have you know a lot in their favor on the on the day on that particular day uh shortening quickly and not getting back out so they're they're harder to win on that's really interesting in my mind i I actually haven't really heard anyone talk about 9am being a a key moment in the day of the racing i in my mind i'm thinking boxing day sales and everyone's standing at the door ready to charge in what is 100 percent what it's like it's it's that's it it's just crazy is that what it is at 901 am that's sort of a thriving marketplace for want of a better term just because everyone's trying to i guess take advantage of the current situation yeah so so you've got like i've got a dynamic odds or whatever so any odds comparison website and and it's like color coded to you know go red or green when the price is shortened or firm and you don't have to be like i can be sitting here doing anything and i like the screen above me will just start flashing like the you know it's like the, the 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 trading markets have just opened it just goes crazy you know up and down and the red and green starts flying everywhere on all markets you know there's different people obviously waiting for different markets and it's uh it's crazy what happens in that sort of half an hour to an hour from 9 to 10 a.m every morning so you worked on the bookmaker side what is the bookmaker thinking at that time because i would imagine only some of the really smart people who are thinking about it as in depth as you are and knowing that 901 a.m is a good time to place a bet given the current environment, what are the bookmakers thinking at that time? Are they collecting all that information and using it, putting it in their vault for the for when the race comes up and, and getting ready to, I guess, act on 9.01 a.m. information as much as information that's 30 minutes before the race? Well, the difference being, so when I was working there, it was probably you know five or six years ago now, and, and it wasn't as crazy. But we thrived on sort of someone, say, like a, for argument's sake, Dominic Byrne, if he was betting with us and and he had a, a bet early, which he would never have had to do in those days, but if he did, as you say, you would you would run your book basically around his information, or I would know uh, I'd know clients pretty well. So say there was a Gay Waterhouse favourite and someone had an unusually large bet from the stable connected to it on this horse, you would you would sort of basically, if you agreed with it, you would run with it and and really push your your book forward as far as you could using that information nowadays they want to handicap everyone and discourage people with a bit of ability or that win in the market and and they basically don't have many skilled people left that you would use the information to drive it forward they more run their whole uh, database like a, a poker machine so say that you're a you're a losing punter they just play you you can do whatever you like, basically, and they know they're going to beat you over time. Whereas me, they they'll restrict me as much as possible. Um, you know, saying that I'm a winning punter for argument's sake, they'll restrict me as much as possible, 
and not even bother using my information. They'll just they'll just handicap me down to where I can't hurt them and their overall, overall holds. Uh, their automated algorithms will adjust pricing off my bet. They'll, so they'll use my information in that regard and and they'll push prices in on the horses that are fancy by people they deem smart and then they'll just let the rest of the people bet however they like and it's just a poker machine that runs around and around. They'll eventually beat the people who are, are losers over time and we might chip away at them but we can never hurt them uh, because of the restrictions now that they're allowed to place on us. Yep, okay. So... Why hasn't there been a pinnacle sports style racing bookmaker come out of the woodworks? Given all of the issues and given, I would imagine, there's probably a lot of money left in the pockets because of the, the inability of uh, a lot of people to get their bets down. What's holding, what's holding that type of bookmaking operation back? I think there's like, I think Centibet had a go at trying to, you know, raise limits and things like that. But they also tightened up the, the threshold. I, I don't. I don't have an answer for that. See, someone's like I saw I had someone smart, similar to someone have a go at me on Twitter not long ago saying like, well, why don't you become a bookmaker? The problem is that you need all of these, uh, or mugs is a bad word, but we'll say, you know, just average punters that are recreational punters. You need their money to fill on all, say you've got 15 runners in a race, you need to be laying all of those horses to be able to use your knowledge to drive forward on the horses that you like so or you know it's to be able to have your book thrive and win you need to be able to lay all runners so companies like sports bet bet 365 who have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising to bring in all these recreational punters into their system uh you're never going to attract them away so so someone like me goes out i could i could attract every smart punter to bet with me tomorrow but i can't attract the recreational punter because I, I cannot possibly give them a product good enough to get them away because they're so well treated if you're if you're a losing punter but as soon as you're a break square or a winning punter you're you're cast aside so they're the only ones looking for a new home and they're not ideal for you know a startup bookmaker so the only one who could really take them on is someone like that's established like a bet 365 or or sports bet and to be honest i don't know why they don't uh uh, open up a bit more liberally, use the punters' information, the smarter punters' information, and really drive their books forward and, and nearly put the other companies out of business. I, I don't know why a big big company hasn't taken that on board, but obviously they've got their reasons uh, and they're making enough money doing it the way they are. So I'm, I can't answer the question, but the problem for a startup company to come and do that or a pinnacle to sort of just come here and do it, they, they're not going to get the volume of recreational punters to make it worthwhile. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's an, it's an unusual topic that keeps coming up given the uh, the issues that are happening, especially for the uh, the professional end of the market where they're unable to get sort of bets down or at the prices they want or bets are pending and cancelled and all those sorts of things. So it's something that seems ripe, but I guess it's not as easy as it sounds and it would take... It would take a fundamental change in the attitude of one of those big bookmakers or an incredibly smart operation to pop up and probably not spend too much money on advertising and focus more on sort of uh, internal risk management and, and those types of things. But I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah, I, and finally, I remember having a, a bit of a conversation with um, with Jelko, a three-way conversation. He was, he, was, he was dirty that he didn't come into corporate bookmaking, say, 10 or 15 years ago and use their information to drive a bookmaking business because 
say they had got hold of a, a database similar to sports bet did or sporting bet back in the day and they did exactly what you said and just pushed forward but had the volume behind they could have been the goliath and and really it needs to be someone with that depth of information to be able to either use a bit of market intelligence and their own to really drive forward and and it's just it's just not going to happen now because it's just too big a, a, a back step i would say for for someone like a sports bet or someone to as you say like put more worth on uh risk management and market intelligence than marketing which is basically what they are now just marketing poker machine based corporates which is you know that's each to their own but that's how it's running so take me through your post-meeting analysis. I would say one of the main things that sort of separate the professionals from the recreational punters are the time spent on the post-meeting sort of evaluation and performance evaluation of betting and not only betting but the horses as well. Do you do that yourself? Is it a priority? Can you outsource it? Take us through some of the, I guess, the thought processes and tools that you use uh, post a meeting. I think... Anybody, it's anybody that works like I do. Who I'm probably more of. I think that uh, Paul Daly, who's been on your your podcast before, sort of describes it as it's a mix of art and science. And I'm much more of an art than a science person. So I use his uh, program to provide basically the science all the times that I I would otherwise have to source myself. Like when I was working for Jelco's, like doing the the pace and bias and setting meetings up and trying to work out what the actual times and sectionals were, I get that provided to me from from a, from a database, from the ratings to win. And then I will apply my artistic part of it to go through the every sort of replay of every race that I'll, I'll um, have anything to do with. So New South Wales racing and uh, apply all the techniques basically I've learned over the years plus from, from Jelco's and mark every horse, check for biases myself, um, allow for you know any interference any bad habits from the horses that i could think could improve any bad habits i think will be detrimental to that horse moving forward making notes in a database and and using that going forward so it probably takes probably an hour or two for each meeting uh when when it comes through from paul's system that all the verified times and everything are in to work with it'll take an hour or two probably for each meeting for post-race analysis so i want to talk about what in the stock market world would be inside information you mentioned yes. earlier about stable connected bets which is completely fine and obviously everyone's aware of those types of things one thing i want to talk about is first starters i always hear about first starters and the argument comes up that owners should be able to get a bet on their horse at their first start for some reason i don't know why it's so arbitrary and someone <laughs> needs to get a bet on their horse at their first start but from my perspective it would be better if every horse had to have a public trial so there's more information out there because everyone I've spoken to relies on the data and relies on the information, whether it's a small percentage or a large percentage of their operation, they are relying on that information. If the information is not there, they're not going to bet. And if they're not going to bet, then the volume and the liquidity in that market is going to be low and that hamstrings the owner's ability to get a bet because if they're betting a decent amount at a decent price, it's going to change the odds quite dramatically and that's going to impact their ability to get a bet. So take us through your thoughts on the inside information with owners and being able to get a bet on and those type of things. It's uh, it's interesting the way you sort of put it, that it's it hampers the So people want the, the, the to be able to hide their horse, but that, that hampers the ability for them to get on their own race. It's kind of, I've never thought of it like that, but uh, it, I do believe that, 
it doesn't really matter if your trainer's good enough and they're organised enough. You know, when when you when you're talking about having to barrier trial, you you don't have to show the horse's true ability in that trial. You just have to show that it's tractable and that it's ready to race and and basically has to get its ticket so that it's it's right to go to the races. So if your trainer's cunning enough to be able to conceal that horse's true ability just by giving it a quiet trial, obviously, and then it's up to the form students' eye to pick up that that horse has. So I'm not saying they're doing anything untoward, not, no, no drugs or anything crazy involved. They're just letting the horse go around under its own steam. It's, uh, it's basically up to the punter to, to, to recognise that and then put a, put a value on that horse when they, when they go around in their first start. So I've got no problem with trainers having to, to trial publicly prior to their first race. I think that's fine. And I, I do agree with that the, the punters are should should be able to access that that vision and uh, for every horse before it has a race uh, when it comes to betting on their first start i think it's probably more that people feel that if they they are lucky enough to have a horse that has a bit of ability or that they want to bet on their first start they they believe that they have the right to do that before anyone else and that's just that's a little bit silly in this day and age only because everyone knows that everyone can see hear everything there's people at the racetrack, boys get around. It's just always going to get out these days. There's no such thing as the 100 to 1 into 2 to 1 winner on debut. It doesn't exist anymore. You know, it happens maybe once every two or three years at absolute best. It doesn't happen as a norm like it used to. The game's changed and people have to adapt to it. And, and like I own, I, I have shares in plenty of horses myself and, and I'm happy to and, and like obviously I like to bet, so I'm happy for everyone to have access to the same information I do of vision and, and trials. Obviously, I'm going to have more um, knowledge of the horse and, and what's what it's doing in training and things like that. But uh, I've got no issue with it, and I do think it drives turnover and, and is good for the game for everyone to have access to that information. And if your trainer has the has good enough ability to not show the horse up and prepare it through jump outs and other things. You know, that's a that's a secret and a technique of a of a good trainer. Yeah, and I think maybe it's the messaging because obviously that happens in all sport, all racing, everywhere. You talk about you know, it might be AFL for example, the full forward suddenly starts full back and you switch it around. Things things that can happen. It's just tactics essentially. So it's sort of framed as somehow not necessarily nefarious, but it's sort of seen as inside information, which is probably not the right word, but I think the messaging could be a little bit different. What about when it comes to, you know, stable hands and strappers and trainers and uh, I guess also owners fall in that bucket? Information that's garnered through those, I guess, avenues. And you said you've worked in the stable environment and have been involved in almost every aspect of the business. Does all that information now just get caught up in the market anyway? So therefore, the edge or the slight edge is basically nil at that point. Do you think that's a fair assessment in the current wagering environment? As in, like they all sort of cut each other out. Like uh, there, there is no uh, advantage from stable information. Is that what you? Yeah. Mean, so, or? like second preparation, Chris Waller, three-year-old, who's had yeah. two starts, yeah. and it seems like now absolutely everyone knows about this horse, and there's no sort of <laughs> secret that this horse is going to jump from its first preparation to its second preparation, and it's headed for the Golden Rose, and you know, first up, it's going to be, you know, flying. It seems like that information now is baked into the market price anyway is that sort of a decent assessment or not or is there still the ability to use i guess for want of a better term inside information 
I think it is definitely baked into the early price. And then what you tend to find is uh, I tend to apply a rule that I've talked about before that the bigger the stable, the more influ- the more real the information, like if the more that information is going to get back to a place like Bestfair. So uh, if there's an issue with a horse or whether there's – or a horse has very strong ability – the bigger the stable, the more chance it is to get back to those those uh, exchanges late just simply by the amount of mouths to feed is kind of how I try and put it, that if you've got a stable with 50 people working in it, like staff, and then they're talking to one, they're talking to one, it grows so quickly that, you know, a horse that's in trouble might blow from $2.50 to $5 uh, in a big stable. It might only blow from $2.50 to $3 in a, in a small stable with the same information. So... Someone like Wallers, you tend to see that, you know, if a horse of theirs is very weak on exchanges and embedding late, it's, it's, it seems to have a, a, a be much more accurate than, uh, than smaller moves from uh, smaller stables. So I, I do think that it plays a big play in the marketplace still, though. Is that perception or is that because I'm sure that there's... So for that example you just mentioned, is that horse a legitimate $4 chance or is it a $40 chance? And the fact that it's gone from 250 to $5 means... I would imagine in some cases it's a legitimate bet at five dollars, in other cases it should be forty to one, and it's not. Well, this like so. So if that mark, if that moves in a, from a smaller stable, uh, in a in a place that's a lot more volatile, I would say, say from arguments like I want to back that horse, and I've got it marked three dollars. I'll probably keep betting if it's a small stable in an in an area that I think I know more about this than, and it, and I know that the the market's so volatile that it could be just a a syndicate. Or someone that's just got a set against something to do with this horse, whether it's you know position in run or jockey or trainer or something that is affecting the the, the price. I'll probably keep betting. But if it's uh, an exposed horse from a big stable in a in a Saturday race or something where there's a lot of people that have done the form in that market, yet the move's still radical, that price is probably, as you say, if it's five to two to five or three to five, it probably should be three to forty one. It, it, it's it's actually. Uh, underplayed and it's it's out of the it's, it's out of business basically the horse i'd say that in time you would do much better laying than backing those horses yeah it's really interesting it's something that i always think about that it seems to be underplayed a little bit and in my mind because uh, it's always said oh betfair knows or betfair you should have seen it on betfair in the last 30 seconds or but yes just the way horse racing is if there's 10 horses in a race and three or four of them are blowing late then there's only one horse that can win so sort of the just pure mathematics says that it's going to be much more you're going to remember much more losers that blew late than than winners and it seems like i don't know if that analysis can be conducted but it seems like you know just in your mind like oh yeah you know i i backed it at five dollars it was 780 on betfair when they jumped and i lost (laughs) well of course it's going to happen much more than the one you remember that that doesn't happen just because only one horse can win the race so it's always an interesting discussion. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a tr- yeah, it is an interesting discussion. I think you can only probably build your own assessments on what you can. And historical data, there's so much. Like Betfair is uh, so easy to go back and, and, and try and analyse. I think it's stable-based. You've really got – is the only way you can uh, probably analyse it because, you know, over time there can be so many different factors that causes horses to blow and, and firm late and – if you're probably jockeys are are interesting because it can be syndicates taking sets against jockeys and trainers. They're probably the two things that I would line up 
you know, which what what's causing the blow, um, you know, and that's just trying to work that out yourself and then applying it to how much uh, onus you place on whether it matters to you or not late in betting or whether it causes you to, to bet up or, or not bet at all. It's um, whether you use it as a warning sign or as a, as a, a thank you to, to, to keep betting and, and then increasing price you're welcoming. So it's probably just a personal thing. You can do your own investigation into what you believe is causing those horses to blow and whether you're taking any notice or not. Yeah, it is interesting. So what are your thoughts on a, a uniform body for racing in Australia? Do you think it's a worthwhile discussion or do you think it's a flawed concept? Well, as much as I'd love it to potentially happen, I, I think it's there's it, so many contributing factors into what drives all these different bodies within Australia and the chances of them marrying up and and having the same like agenda is probably a bad word, but you know they've all got people that they need to uh, provide to, whether it be uh, breeders, owners, um, punters. Everyone's got people that they need to keep happy, and and they're not always going to they're they're always going to overlap. You're always going to step on other people's toes. Someone's always going to cop the raw end of the stick. And I don't understand how we're going to possibly get it into one national body. I'd I'd probably love it to happen because it would solve or it would be easier to solve so many issues that I or punters personally face uh, if it was one national body. And I and it would be great for for the for those decisions to only have to go through one set of hands. But I just think it's such a long shot to ever happen uh I, I don't see how like governing like in state governing bodies can possibly ever combine to be one there, there may be a panel of sorts or or a, or a conference every year where we try and get you know decisions across the board put to one you know body one federal body or something i, I don't know how it can possibly happen but i don't see one body governing racing any in any time in my life anyway yeah it's an interesting one i guess we'll, we'll wait and see I like to try and pick your brain and get a couple of tools for the, I guess, the everyday recreational punter to use. A few people in the past, I think Mark Lambon mentioned SP is probably his best tool that he uses, or he even mentioned that horses sit outside the leader. Next start will be a decent bet because they're going to be pretty fit and they've had a good a good run prior. Do you have any tools? or Essentially, what's you know some of the biggest assets that you have as a punter that you can sort of um, give some insight to those who bet on the weekend and might be able to use and get a little bit more of an advantage on that day or on that you know race meeting. You know, may not necessarily win long term or anything like that, but yes, better chance of a collect. Well, interestingly, I've just just to say on Mark Lambert's thing. One of the first things I was ever taught from uh, at Jelko's is you can never give a negative mark to a horse that sits outside the leader, and that's because it's the the hardest position in the race to race from. So whether that be outside the leader, three wide, no cover, four wide, no cover, you could never, ever give a negative mark to those horses simply because it's uh, such a tough, tough place to be. And that, that sort of ties into why Mark would would say those sort of horses have a big advantage in them. So that's true. Um, from my perspective, I, I believe that uh, the best situation you can be to a punter is to find uh, races with with like what an even to strong tempo and a fair track so you want to identify tracks like bigger tracks where there's less uh, bias and things come into play and you want to find races that are going to be run at a true tempo and that's when you can establish that the strongest horse should win that race 
when you're sort of running into tracks with a lot of bias and slow tempos, small fields, basically it's it's all up to tactics and and decisions made by jockeys and things like that, and it and and it, and it brings a lot of factors into play which are out of your control at the end of the day. You can try and predict them and and price to your predictions, but you you don't have control. Whereas the bigger the field, the more genuine tempo. If you can, if you can then try and identify the strongest horse, so say a horse that's one over that distance or more, uh, the strongest form lines, they're going to win those races more often when faced with a, a, a genuine race with less variables uh, from a track perspective and things like that. So I, if, if I was just to, to, to help punters in that sort of, they're, they're the most predictable races to predict the outcome. And you, you do find you get a lot of value in those races too, which is it sort of falls hand in hand. So for me, I try and find uh, the race that's, going to be run the most genuine and then I try and identify the strongest uh, horse in that race and I tend to do that by uh, I hate I want to find a horse that's won at that distance or further or who genuinely has done things at its previous starts to say that it's going to be strong uh, through the line and they're the, they're the horses that are the, the most predictable over time to win out of horses that a race on the pace again are going to be better again so on pace and strong in a fast run race uh, or a genuinely run race on a, on a fair track, they're going to be your most profitable horses over time consistently. I don't uh, know if that made sense. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that, that does. It's really interesting because it seems like a theme when I do ask that question or something similar is finding scenarios where you can remove variants or remove variables essentially. And if that's a horse that's going to sit in the first couple of horses on a you know quick tempo and they're going to run it sol- solidly and they've shown that they can run that distance out. It's going to be very hard for something behind it to run over the top in that scenario. So it is. it seems like finding those predictable scenarios is the way to go and then you can have a lot more confidence in your betting. Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's that's all it is, Remo- removing variables and, and, and a horse that can do things that other horses in that race have shown they can't. It's, it's basically your, your golden ticket. So where do you sit on the Black Caviar Winks sort of discussions? Are you in the Winks camp? Oh, funnily, I, I remember I was doing, um, I was working for a company uh, doing a chat room sort of thing live during the day, and I remember when uh, James McDonald won on Winks uh, in, first up from a spell over about thirteen hundred meters at, at Rose Hill in uh, in October in two thousand fifteen, and um, I remember saying to the people in the chat room that it's the best horse I've ever seen. And getting sh- just tearing shreds off me, saying, "Oh, this horse, that horse, other." And I just, I just remember, like, I, I don't, I've never seen a horse like her that can sustain a sprint at such a high level, off a fast tempo, slow tempo, sitting. It can do it consistently, and I'd have to say that uh, as as good as Black Caviar was, and obviously she's incredible, and it'd be tough to to line them up. I'd I'd back Winks to beat her, and uh, even over like fourteen hundred meters, I definitely would. Uh, 1200 meters i still think she'd probably get her at a peak i just think she's an incredible animal that can do something i've never seen a horse like her in australia in the time that i've been in racing and, and black caviar was obviously highly uh talented and, and put horses away through her middle section of the race and had them destroyed by the time they got to the straight but i really think that winks would have kept coming at her she's just an incredible animal Interesting. I guess maybe because I grew up in Melbourne and maybe there's some bias there and maybe you've got some recency bias and there's a million other biases, but I just can't imagine any other horse being able to 
win over a short sprint distance as easily as Black Caviar did. It just doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen again, but I guess we'll... Well, she was cuddle. I wish... Yeah, she she, well, she only ever had the one start at 1,400 metres in her life, and it's just hard to say that she would have even probably still been dominant over that distance, and she was, but, uh, yeah, she was... They were, they're such different horses, and, and Black Caviar was dominant from, you know, a two-year-old, even though she when she was injured, she still won injured, and and came back and was dominant all the way through, whereas Winx took her time to develop as, as a type and, and continues to improve. So they're, they're so difficult to, to put alongside each other and compare, but they're both uh, certainly, you know, extremely talented and exceptional animals that have kept racing going in Australia for mine over the last 10 to 15 years. They've just, between the two of them, the timing was such so, so good for, the, for racing itself. Absolutely. John, I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, do you want to just uh, let the listeners know where they can find you if they want to reach out, probably on Twitter or the website? Yeah, so on Twitter, I think I'm uh, John Walter. I'm not too difficult to find. And my, my website's racingwatch, racingwatch.com.au. Uh, I've just started that up. I'm trying to make it sort of like a community where, where I try and keep everything you know really as cheap as I can and get people involved in a chat room and that sort of thing where they, they're like, like-minded people that can come and and share their ideas and, and hopefully learn a few things. So that's that's the idea and, and try and make racing a little bit more popular, hopefully. And what about the videos you're doing with, I think, Paul, you're doing them together with the uh, Punting Academy, is that right? Yeah, so each week we're trying to just, just get people to email in questions similar to today and just go through them and, and answer them and hopefully people can pick up uh, little things along the way and, you know, they, they might not agree with everything we do. And the beauty of Paul and I is we have such a different outlook on racing, and he's he's very data driven, and I'm and I'm the opposite probably, uh, you know, the more the artistic side of it. So we we really do answer most questions from two extreme point of views, and uh, I think over time it'll it'll really strengthen up. And I'm I'm really impressed by Paul's depth and and his passion for racing, and obviously I'm pretty passionate too. So it it, it comes comes off pretty well, I think, and. You know, it'll only get better over time with with more questions, and and uh, yeah, I, I hope it's a positive thing. Obviously, that just that goes up on YouTube too, a Punters Academy. So we'll continue that on, and and hope uh, hope to do it for a long time yet. Yeah, certainly. I suggest everyone jump on YouTube and have a look if they haven't already. John, thank you very very much for your time. I really appreciate it. All the best for the upcoming spring, and uh, hope to do this again soon. Thanks, mate, and thanks for all your uh, all the people that you've done this with. It's really um, informative for everyone, and I hope it continues as well. It's great. Thank you. <laughs>